Hi, everyone. Thank you for welcoming us into your homes, and a special welcome to Aldergrove. It is good to see you. So we are continuing on in our churchwide initiative, and we have been talking about you in five years. What, when you look back on your life five years from now, what differences will you see in who you are and, and uh, how you're living? And, and hopefully, uh, we'll look back on our lives and say, yeah, we've grown. We've, uh, we have learned some things about ourselves and about the Lord, and uh, we've grown closer to Jesus. So today, I want to talk about you, no fear. I, I think it's easy to be afraid of the future. In fact, I think that's our, our default response to uncertainty. And I think we live at a, in a time and a place where uh, there's a lot of anxiety about the future. There's a lot of fear about the future. And uh, uh, fear about the future and faith can't coexist. Now, it, it's, it's okay to be fearful about some things. In fact, there are something, such a thing as healthy fears. For example, the fear of God is a healthy kind of fear. This is a, a respect for God, a reverence for God, an awe of God. Uh, it's also probably important to be afraid of some things that could harm us, like we should have a, think a fear of a healthy fear of heights and uh, maybe a healthy fear of spiders. And I know some, maybe some people have an unhealthy fear of spiders, but uh, it is good to be afraid of some things. But we should not be afraid of the future because of uncertainty. And that's what I want to talk about today. Someone has counted 365 fear-nots in Scripture, and they all have to do with uh, an expectation of the future. And I, I think that means there's one fear-not for every day of the year. So our text is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 to 17. We'll, we'll take it in sections. I'll read a section, then we'll talk about it. So the first section, verses uh, 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation... But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Sir Father, we thank you for your great, great love for us. Thank you that you have adopted us as sons and daughters, and that we don't need to fear an uncertain future, because we know you have a great plan for our lives. Thank you for the relationship that we can have with you, Father, as, as Abba, Father. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to our former way of living, but rather your Spirit guides and leads and directs us into the best kind of life. And Lord, we thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen. So the text that I just read is really a summary of Romans chapter 8 so far. It basically says that we do have an obligation but it is not a duty to live according to the, what we've been calling the flesh or the disordered desires of the flesh, because this actually will only lead to death. Rather, instead, we are to live by the Spirit. And this means that we are put to death the misdeeds of the body. And this leads to life. So this is what the Apostle saying. Now notice that this is all done by the Spirit. And what the Apostle means by that is it's not our own willpower 
or our own strength that enables us to live according to the desires of the Spirit and to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Rather, just as we have been saved by grace, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and it's not something that we've been able to do, so we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, so we grow spiritually, so we put to death the misdeeds of the body, and we live accordance with, with the Spirit's desires by the very same work of the Spirit. So on the one hand, He saves us, on the other hand, He causes us to grow. He causes us to mature into Christ's likeness. Now, notice also that in our text, it, it tells us that one sin does not lead to death because it talks about we no longer live in, on the, in, with the misgivings or the, the misguided desires of the Spirit. And the important idea here is that it's talking about the fact that when we become followers of Jesus, we no longer habitually sin. We no longer make a practice of sin. We don't live on the precipice, so to speak, of the abyss. We're not living in, and, and thinking, wow, you know, one more mistake or one thing that I do wrong, I'm going to fall to destruction. I'm going to fall into this giant chasm. Uh, rather, the confidence here is, no, as followers of Jesus, we now make a practice of living by the Spirit. So occasionally, we may sin. And this is the same thing that's being told us in uh, John's writing. 1 John chapter 3 talks about this, that we do not make a habit of sinning, though from time to time we may sin. But we're not in danger of some cataclysmic uh, collapse in our lives because of a, a, a sin. Rather, we are guided and helped by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice this also. Paul writes, misdeeds of the body. I don't know if you noticed that. When we would have expecting him to be talking about misdeeds of the flesh, because he's been contrasting the flesh and the spirit. But instead, he moves away from using that word flesh, the, the disoriented desires of our human nature. And he wants to say, uh, we want to put to death the misdeeds of the body. This is because we no longer live in the flesh. As followers of Jesus, we live in bodies, but we don't live in accordance with the old desires anymore. We no longer have a duty to them. We are free from the slavery of our old selves or our old way of living, and we live in bodies, not the flesh. Let's go on. Verses 14 and following. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. We are not slaves, but adopted children. Now, um, in the first century Roman Empire, uh, adoption was used uh, of uh, sons of any age. And in fact, it was often used of adult children. Uh, they used it for some inheritance purpose or to pass on uh, a privilege to, to the next generation. Uh, it wasn't used just of children, so children could be adopted of any age. In fact, uh, Claudius, the emperor, adopted Nero as his son so that he would follow him as the emperor. So when Paul uses this term adoption of sons, he's thinking of Roman law, and he's using it as another metaphor for salvation. So he uses several metaphors to help us understand what it means to be saved, such as uh, we are the household of faith. Uh, he uses a metaphor, we are the temple of God. He talks about us being the bricks in the temple of God, uh, the body of Christ. And so this is another helpful metaphor to help explain to us what it means to become uh, 
a follower of Jesus or to uh, be saved, to, to be justified, to come into this new relationship with God. So uh, this, is, this new metaphor is based on this, this fundamental understanding in Roman law of the patria potesta. This was the absolute right of a father to have power over his family, even to life and death. So a father had the ability to put a son or a daughter to death. Uh, he could do it at birth, and he could do it at any time in that son or daughter's life. In fact, there was never uh, the idea of children coming of age in the first century Roman law. A child uh, was always underneath the patria potesta of the father. Now, there were two steps in the adoption ceremony. First of all, there was the emancipation. It was rather a, a formal ceremony where the former father, where the old father, would take a set of scales and copper weights, and he would uh, sell his son and buy him back, and then a second time, sell his son and buy him back using the, the symbols of a, of a weight scale and copper. And then the third time, he would sell his son and not buy him back. And this was meaning he was, he was emancipating the son. He was freeing the son from the patria potesta and uh, freeing him to be adopted. And then the second part of the adoption process was called the vindication. This is where the new father would present his legal case to a magistrate. There had to be seven witnesses to this. And uh, when he did this and he received... Uh, the son, as an adopted son, there were four consequences according to Roman law. First of all, the son, the new son, would lose all rights to the former family and, and receive completely the new rights of the family. Secondly, he became heir to the father's estate. Even if other children were born into the family, he would be equal heirs and, and would be treated no differently in terms of the law to the other children in the family. Thirdly, and this is interesting, all debts and the records of his former life would be canceled. So can you imagine some uh, 30 or 40-year-old uh, son being adopted and any debts that he had, any, any records, uh, criminal records, they're all canceled uh, because now he was coming under a new father. And I think this is what Paul is getting at when he talks about us as, as adopted children, that the, the former way of living, it's canceled, the debts are erased, and we're brought under the authority of a new father who has absolute authority in our lives. And then fourthly, in the lies of the law, he is absolutely the son of the new father. He comes completely under the new father's power and control. And so this is the image, this is the metaphor that the Apostle Paul wants us to get a hold of when we begin to understand what it means to be adopted sons and daughter, daughters of our Heavenly Father. Well, let's go on. It's in, it then says in our text, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, first of all, let's, let's notice that that the Spirit is now giving witness and testimony. In Roman law, there were seven witnesses, and if a dispute arose about an inheritance or about any legal matter regarding the adoption, those witnesses would come forward. In Jewish law, it always took two witnesses to establish a fact. And so what this is saying here is that the Holy Spirit becomes the witness of our adoption. And we ourselves also witness this adoption because of the Spirit living in us. And so we have those two verifiable accounts that we are indeed children of God. And then verse 17 goes on to say, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, 
heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Notice here that it's saying that not only do we have a new father who has absolute control uh, over our lives, but we call him Abba. Now, that's a slightly different shift in thinking from the Roman view of father, because this is the word of intimacy. It's an Aramaic word that means daddy. And Jesus used it in Mark 14, verse 36, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He called his father daddy, a term of endearment, perhaps something a child would use to talk to his or her father. And so we see that this father, this, this heavenly father, with all the power and, and, and might and of, of being God of the universe, uh, he's not just a father, but he's daddy to us. He's, he's this beloved uh, uh, person in our lives who loves us and cares for us and cherishes us. The, the image that we get here is that while sin, the disordered desires of the flesh, seduce and drive us, as in driving a, a slave... The Holy Spirit guides us. And this, of course, is uh, something that Jesus told the disciples in John 16, that the Holy Spirit was to come into our lives to guide us. Notice the contrast. Uh, The Holy Spirit persuades us and leads us like a shepherd goes in front of his flock and the sheep follow. While on the other hand, the old way of living, the desires of the fallen nature, they drive us they put us in bondage. And so this new relationship we have with God is not a new bondage. It's not a new slavery, so to speak, but rather it is a leading and a gentle guiding us by a loving heavenly father, a close father, child relationship that leads us into the way of the spirit, the way of uh, Jesus, the way of the kingdom of God and his children. It tells us that that we are co-heirs with Christ. It says, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's verse 17. But the message puts it this way. It's really helpful. He says, if Eugene Peterson says, if we go through the hard times with him, we will surely go through the good times with him. And, and that's tremendous, isn't it? If we, if we follow Jesus, if we put up with the inconveniences and the challenges and, and perhaps... Um, Uh, the harsh words and harsh treatment uh, because we're followers of Jesus, we will also share in his glory. We'll share the good times with him. And this is talking about heaven and all the rest that that waits for us. So in other words, uh, if we're standing on a precipice, we're standing on a precipice where we are just on the verge of falling into heaven. Uh, We're not falling into an abyss. We're falling into heaven. We're falling into the hands of a loving, heavenly Father. That's tremendous thought. That's tremendous insight to understand that that, uh, we're secure because of who our daddy is. We're secure because of who our heavenly Father is. So we need to live with no fear. We're not slaves. We are sons and daughters of our loving, heavenly Father. We're not bound by the old ways of living. We've been freed from that. Instead, the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into the privileges of being adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Our new daddy assures us of a grand future, a guaranteed outcome. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that we would truly grasp what it means to be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. 
I pray, Lord, that we would not fear the uncertainties that, that we may face in our lives, but rather we would with certainty know who you are, how you love us, how you're going to care for us through all of our lives and all of the future. Lord, I pray for those who might be here today who, who do not have that security, who, who live in fear of the future. Lord, I pray that you would help them uh, to come to Jesus and simply throw themselves on you, on your mercy, on your grace, and say to you, yes, Abba, Father, you are my Father. Father, thank you that you are a loving God and that you care for us every moment of every day, every circumstance of our lives is in your hands. We trust you, Lord. We know who you are. We know who we are as sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I want you to contemplate a question the next few minutes. Some music will be playing in the background. The question is this. Are you certain that you are a child of God? Are you certain that you are a child of God? Why or why not? And then I'll come back with a concluding comment. Sometimes in our age, we use the word faith uh, in, in ways that it's not used in Scripture. We use the word faith as if, well, we hope that to be the case. And we're not really certain, but we, we think this might be true. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not uncertain. Biblical faith is based on knowledge, uh, not wishful thinking. Biblical faith is 100% sure of what it's believing in. Uh, for an example, if you ask John the Gospel writer if he believed Jesus rose from the dead, I think he would look at you a bit strangely and say, well, it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of knowledge. I stood at the foot of the cross I saw Jesus die. I saw the soldier put the sword in his side. He was dead. And then I went to the grave, and I saw the grave clothes in the grave, just laying a certain way that I, I, I knew, I knew he rose from the dead. And then I met with him, the resurrected Jesus, with a supernatural body. We ate together. We talked together. So no, it's not just that I believe. I am absolutely convinced. It is a matter of knowing that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. Well, in the same way, we know that we are children of God, that we have been adopted into God's family. I know with certainty that this is true. I know this on the same level of knowing that I know that the sky is blue. I know that I am here today. I mean, that's not simply a belief. I know this to be true. I know God created the heavens and the earth. I know God gave us Jesus Christ. I know Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ has come into my life. You see, that certainty, that knowing, that idea of faith removes fear because it removes any uncertainty. Do you have that certainty in your life? I trust that you do. I trust that you come to Jesus and you invite him into your life, and you allow him to adopt you as a son or a daughter of his Father in heaven. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, 
now and forevermore. Amen. Have a wonderful week.